0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to to Unemployed unemployed Workers workers Fight Back. back. Join your hosts Anne
1: and Kevin, that's me,
0: the second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show,
1: between 5.30 and 6.30pm.
0: Here on 3CR Community Radio.
1: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
0: for the unemployed and underemployed.
2: Everyone
0: Everyone in in our our community community has value. value. (laughs)
3: Feeling calm Don't mix your dreams
1: Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kevin. It's Friday the 23rd of October. That was Alice Ivy with their song Kaya High and I'm so looking forward to seeing them and other bands when we're able to open up again, which hopefully will be soon. Good afternoon to you, Anne.
0: Wow, the year is going. Hey, Kevin, and hello to all our fellow travellers in macroeconomic land.
1: And always thank you to Jacob for the Friday rave. There's plenty for us to rave about this week, Anne, because we've had a budget come out and we've had all this stuff happen. Mm -hmm. So rather than having a guest this week, um, you and I are just going to have a bit of a review, just go over things. So what should we be focusing on, Anne?
0: Hmm. Well, I think the uh, budget is a really good moment to see if we can figure out exactly what's going on. As Dr. Stephen Hale was saying, it's a really good teaching moment to have a look at how the government is responding and it sort of shows up how the economy really works.
1: It tests all the theories, doesn't it? Everybody's got these theories flying around, like the neoliberals have got their theories and Milton Friedman had his theories and Keynes had his theories and and MMT is is a theory as well, uh, which is all good and well, but it it takes uh, extreme times to test the boundaries of those theories Uh, Mm. and I'm feeling, feeling pretty comfortable with my modern monetary theory
0: Yeah, I feel like it's one of the better ways and more accessible ways to really understand all of these things that, as you say, people have their own opinions. I just love the way that uh, Dr. Stephen Hale was mentioning that even Paul Keating still has an opinion and likes to stick his nose in (laughs) to what's going on. In 1990, he infamously announced that this is the recession that Australia had to have. (laughs) And just as a comparison, That was a moment in which unemployment rose to over 10% and it came right on the heels of the Port Keating government, uh, achieving a record $9 billion surplus.
1: It's a very interesting uh, sort of event this, isn't it? Because what we're noticing is that uh, surpluses are more often than not followed by a recession. This seems to be a bit of a common pattern when governments rely on monetary policy, which is to say interest rates, as opposed to uh, fiscal policy, which is uh, government spending, to revive a failing economy. But let's listen to an interview that we did with Stephen Hale uh, a short time ago.
0: So what we're talking about is understanding what our government is doing to manage the economy and to understand that we do need to have a good grounding in macroeconomics Uh, If we mean maintaining full
4: employment over time and ensuring that people are not forced into involuntary unemployment, underemployment, insecure employment and, and poverty, then yes, we do need to understand macroeconomics. We need to understand that there is really very little that the Reserve Bank of Australia can do to support the economy. Regardless of what Paul Keating says, (laughs) there's nothing that the RBA can do, particularly given the very high level of household debt we already have. Mm -hmm. So, with households, it's not just that we have a fragile financial system, which we do now, it's also that these households are not in a position to borrow anymore. Mm -hmm. We have the second highest ratio in the world of household debt to GDP, uh, we have relied disproportionately and unwisely on private debt. It inevitably drives you to zero interest rates, which is where we are about to go, because it doesn't matter how low interest rates are, you get to a point where those people in the private sector won't take on any more debt. And then monetary policy to the extent it ever worked to push the economy forward, is broken, and that's where we are at the moment. Right. So that's what the RBA has has discovered. They've missed their inflation target. They've missed it on the low side almost the whole time, for six years now. They've been desperately trying to create inflation, unable to do so, because they can't persuade us to borrow anymore. It shouldn't even be up for debate anymore, the appropriate thing to do to support the economy now is not to look to the RBA. (laughs) Um, Paul Keating saying the RBA should be buying more government bonds. Well, fine, it won't do any harm, but it's not actually going to achieve anything either. There is nothing the RBA can do to make the government's fiscal policy any easier by doing more quantitative easing, which is what Paul Keating was talking about. I had a journalist from the Australian Financial Review, sent me an email this morning saying, is Paul Keating advocating for MMT? To which I answered, I don't think he has any idea what MMT is, (laughs) but I've just given him a copy of Stephanie Kelton's book, so perhaps he will soon.
0: And that boils down to, it seems to me, the people in charge not understanding how the monetary system works and focusing too much on the monetary side of it rather than the fiscal side
4: mainstream economists have had a blind spot for decades they have thought that fiscal deficits were unsustainable or would get you into trouble so you'd better make sure you balance your budget on average or at least don't allow the ratio of government debt to gdp to increase Not on twitter you'll see famous economists talking about government debt being uh, something we should all lose sleep about. I think Janet Yellen said that recently. Uh, Tony Makin, who is a very right-wing economist at the University of Queensland, wrote an article on The Conversation the other day that I wrote on the comments underneath, all the things that, that were wrong with it. <laughs> um, they think government debt is the problem. Now, our message, of course, is that when the government spends more than it taxes, it actually puts additional dollars into the system. Now, those dollars, which didn't exist before, are now available for the private sector to save. The government's deficit is the private sector's surplus. That government deficit spending, it doesn't get in the way of the private sector. It puts the private sector in a stronger and more stable and secure position. And deficit spending by the government supports the private sector. It supports jobs. It supports industry. And it's a great tragedy, really, that this isn't generally understood. Mm -hmm. The only way the government could get in trouble in a country with a monetary system like Australia's is if they spent too much and created inflation. We could spend too much. Theoretically, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but we could spend too much and create runaway inflation. That would be a good problem to have at the moment because we know how to solve that problem.
0: 3 here to stay.
1: We just heard from Orange Shoes with Rip It Up, which I think should be the theme song of the next few years as we reset our whole economy. Uh, before that, we heard from Stephen Hale talking about monetary policy, the Reserve Bank and Paul Keating.
0: Yeah, so Paul Keating was one of the first treasurers to (laughs) successfully, if you want to call it that, run a surplus. He began this sort of surplus obsession. So he's still operating within that orthodox sort of neoliberal economic framework. And so there is this, uh, this kind of controversy over whether the main lever in the economy is monetary policy and then the other lever in the economy is fiscal policy which is where the government uses its currency-creating capacity to spend money into existence through a budget.
1: What we're talking about is it's a private sector versus public sector argument. And, of course, the Conservatives think the private sector should run the economy, uh, and progressives like you and I think that the government should become far more involved in in the uh, economy, you know, by running uh, a jobs guarantee program and becoming directly involved with employment and and, uh, fiscally stimulating the economy. That's that's the the battle line, private sector versus public sector.
0: Mm, It just so happens that minimising your use of the fiscal capacity suits the neoliberal idea very well of small government, so you don't want the government spending a lot, and it suits the idea of, deregulation because you don't want to be spending all this money on enforcing regulations, and it reinforces the idea of privatisation because you don't want the government running all these services. And so that whole neoliberal agenda is very well served by this monetary theory that uh, somebody like Paul Keating seems to still be subscribing to, and he still has a way with words, Keating, you've got to admire him for that.
1: Look, I, I really love Keating because he he was because of his wit and because of just just how successful he was at um, dismantling uh, you know the Liberal Party yeah. and the rest of it. However, as I'm learning over time, you could hardly call Paul Keating a, a a radical progressive. He's he's very much very much a, a small L liberal. Uh, he's adopted neoliberal policy. Uh, he's done it in a kind of small L friendly way, but it's not what you'd call very left-wing politics. It's not very progressive. It's, it's all geared towards small business. And so over time, I'm becoming more and more disillusioned with a lot of the stuff that Keating did, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: it's it's one of the great um, moments of um, grief, I think, for a lefty and someone who's admired the ALP in the past is to find out that they were in fact the prototype neoliberals. <laughs> I did have to go and have a look at some of what, uh, Paul Keating was famous for saying, and uh, on Facebook, there's actually a Paul Keating insult appreciation society that has.
1: I'm a member of it You are a member. There are
0: sixty thousand people who are just loving the Paul Keating stuff. I don't know if you do. You remember when he he described um, John Houston's style as like being flogged with a warm lettuce?
1: Oh, I thought, that was, uh, I thought that was Alexander Downer, you know. It he, he, he uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> could have applied to either <laughs> of them, couldn't it?
1: It could have, yeah. And he, Just, yeah, sensational. And
0: even in this last round where he was describing the Liberals as the little bitchy Liberals, <laughs> which I'm going to have to use that one, <laughs> and he's calling the, the central bank the high priests of the incremental, meaning that they're not getting a move on. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, but look, all all he's been advocating is um, for more quantitative easing. He's still pushing the the monetary policy barrow uh, and he's saying that the Reserve Bank needs to do more by buying bonds and and, uh, trying to balance the books through the the government buying its own debt, which is a pointless exercise. But, you know, Mm. uh, and it shows that he's, you know, he's not that progressive when it comes to his uh, his economics. He's still very much in the uh, orthodox realm of, of... balanced budgets and surpluses and the rest of it.
0: Yeah, so so on the other hand, like, you know, the great sort of irony in all of this is that uh, poor old Josh Frydenberg has had to engage in a little bit more fiscal policy than what he's used to doing. <laughs> I had one of those really weird dreams again where I'm sure I could hear Josh Frydenberg lamenting. It was almost like he was at a funeral for a surplus. <laughs> yeah.
2: The government will adopt a new two-stage fiscal strategy that emphasises jobs and growth. This is key to stabilising and then reducing our debt to GDP ratio. Of course, as our circumstances have changed, our fiscal strategy must also change our previous fiscal strategy has served us well. Under the previous strategy, our plan was to deliver budget surpluses of sufficient size to significantly reduce gross debt and eliminate net debt by the end of the medium term. Unfortunately, in the face of this large economic shock, this is no longer the prudent or appropriate course of action. It would now be damaging to the economy and unrealistic to target surpluses over the forward estimates. And even though debt will be at much higher levels than what we are accustomed to, it remains sustainable and it will be put back on a steady path of reduction. A revised fiscal strategy is consistent with our core values. These have not changed. It will maintain our emphasis on fiscal discipline, lower taxes, containing the size of government and investing in a stronger economy. Only through repairing the economy can we repair the budget.
0: (laughs) <laughs> he had to give up his idea of, what, of, of running a surplus at the moment because, like uh, Stephen Hale says, everyone's a Keynesian in a foxhole, meaning that whenever you're in danger of or you're going through a recession, there's only one player in the game who can do spending without worrying about how much debt they're incurring, and that, of course, is the federal government because, as we say, their deficits are our surpluses.
1: What gets my goat? About this whole thing is is the kind of just the the, the plain doublespeak where you have Josh Rodenberg saying that he's drawing inspiration from Thatcher and from Reagan and mm-hmm. that government still needs to have a hands off approach to the private sector as he spends two hundred billion dollars directly into the economy to support the private sector. It it is completely against his ideology and and yet he can say that oh, no, we don't believe in this, but we're just going to do it on a massive scale anyway. Yeah. They do it and then they pretend that they haven't done it. They just go, oh, that was just an emergency measure. No, we've had deficits running in Australia for 100 years. Our economy is built on Mm -hmm. government deficit after government deficit. If we didn't have deficits, there'd be no bloody growth. And they sit there and they say, oh, no, it's just something you need to do in an emergency. Rubbish.
0: We've done it forever. We still haven't gotten away from the narrative that on the whole Australia does need to run surpluses so they're still able to swing the story that this is just a temporary exercise and an exception where it's actually not the exception but you can also see and in fact Josh said it like he said it when he was talking about this budget that they recently announced Uh, he said that Our plan is guided by our values. Our circumstances may have changed, but our values endure. And you can tell that they haven't let go of that small government vision. And more particularly, they haven't let go of their idea that it's not the government that is the engine of the economy, it's the market that's the engine of the economy. So a lot of that spending that we saw being talked about in the budget is all about giving money to business to create the jobs. So what
1: they're saying is uh, we're going to help business, the private sector, rebuild the economy. But the private sector needs people to spend. And if people don't have money, they're not going to spend, which means you can tell somebody, here, I'm going to pay for half your apprentices, But if that business is shrinking because there's no demand, they're not going to be putting on any apprentices. They're not going to be borrowing any money if they're already up to the eyeballs in debt. So what they're saying is if you're a business that's doing well, which means you don't need any help, we're going to give you all this help. But if you're a (laughs) business that's struggling, well, we're going to offer you all this help that you can't use because it's not applicable to your business because you don't want to be taking on any more debt, you don't want to be taking on any more apprentices, You, you, you you don't want to be spending, you're trying to survive because... For whatever reason, if you're on the wrong side of the of the COVID uh, breakdown, and your business is going to fail, and a lot of businesses are going to fail, so so you end up with this divide where successful businesses will get a a, a help, and failing businesses will will have a, a range of, of, of supports that are of no use to them.
3: Marshall, sounds like an SOS. Holy whack, unlyrical lyrics, Andre. You're fucking right. To the rapmobile. Let's go.
0: Oh. <laughs> You're
1: listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back A show all about the economics and experience
0: Of unemployment and underemployment Here on 3CR
1: Community Radio unemployed workers fight back uh, we just heard from Eminem giving his thoughts on business uh, and before that we were talking about the uh, the budget and where the money's going and what we're finding out through this uh, through this exploration through modern monetary theory is that we've always run deficits deficits help stimulate the economy they're nothing to be afraid of but what's more important is, where the money goes, and uh, there are some concerns that we have with the, the the budget that's just been handed down, that the money is going, again, in the wrong places. It's, it seems to be propping up people who are doing well, and if you're not doing well, it seems you're lined up for a kicking as per usual. So it's not, it's not about the size of the deficit. It's not about the size of the economy. It's about who is benefiting in the economy. Is it being spread evenly? And uh, so we were speaking with... Stephen Hale, a short time ago, and he had some definite views on this.
4: Let's work out what matters, because the size of the economy itself doesn't matter. What matters is that we don't have people living in economic insecurity and poverty, and that people who can work and who want to work can find a decent job and decent income support for people who can't work and that there's a decent age pension for the elderly and that we have a, a really good education system and health system and it's all properly funded mm-hmm. and that we transition to renewables. We should be investing something like seven or eight times as much on renewables as we currently are in Australia and try to encourage the world to do this before we drive ourselves into extinction. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that matter, and we need to make sure we do this without undermining everything by creating inflation.
0: So it doesn't really matter how much of this money stuff is flying around in the economy. What really matters is how it gets spent.
4: That's right, and uh, our constraint, as we often say, is our real resources and inflation risk. Mm. In terms of supporting the economy, when the pandemic struck the vital support for the economy was the government's immediate commitment to engage in what people would have seen previously as unthinkably high levels of deficit spending. And what the government announced in March was that they were prepared basically to do $200 billion worth of deficit spending, which means running a deficit, maybe 10% of gross domestic product. Now, people might have imagined that before they could do that, they'd have to go and borrow $200 billion. Let me just give you a statistic you could throw at people. In order for the government to borrow, that involves the government selling government bonds. The only way that the private sector can buy government bonds, the only way institutionally it's possible, is to use the reserves that the private banks have at the RBA to pay for them. In March, the total amount of reserves that the banks held at the RBA was about $30 billion. (laughs) So it was literally impossible for the government to borrow that money from the private sector before they spent it because they were planning to borrow across the year seven times as much as the total amount of exchange settlement account reserves in existence... (laughs) In other words, the government had to spend the money into the system or, and this has happened a bit too, the RBA had to lend the money to the banks before the banks could buy these treasury bonds. The government said, "Okay, we're going to do $200 billion worth of deficit spending and hang on a minute, there is only $30 billion there in the system. Wonderful. So we've literally had this year... A description of how our monetary system works, which is exactly along the lines of modern monetary theory and just makes the, the normal narrative you get about government borrowing look completely ridiculous because we've got to spend the money into the system before we can, in inverted commas, borrow it back.
0: So one way of reading between the lines of what Josh was saying is we're quite prepared to spend <laughs> in order for Australia to get through this challenging time.
4: As a very right wing economist called Robert Lucas, who has a Nobel Prize, who is even more right wing than Josh Frydenberg, said in 2008, everyone is a Keynesian in a foxhole. <laughs> they, they didn't have any choice but to engage in not a high enough level, but a high level of deficit spending starting in March, and that's exactly what they did. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, of course, the first chance they get to rein it back again inappropriately, they're doing, they're reverting to type, they're like alcoholics. (laughs) They've given up the neoliberal alcohol in March this year, but as the year goes by, they want to go back to it again, and we'll have the same narrative again next year. They'll be talking about, oh... We can't afford to keep unemployed people out of poverty. Of course, we need to give rich people tax cuts. We need to give lots of subsidies to coal miners and gas producers. We're going to go back to that narrative again. And they won't adopt a sensible approach to thinking about fiscal policy. Of course they won't. What we are lacking in this country is not a sensible conservative party because that's an oxymoron. (laughs) What we are lacking... Is I uh, get in trouble for saying this, but I'm not as rude as some people are when I say it. Uh, we're lacking a sensible Labour Party.
1: Talking about foxholes, they seem to have gone undercover. I suspect that after the last election, they are strategically remaining quiet during what you'd call a, um, a national crisis.
4: I have some idea of what's going to be in the ALP program, yeah, and it's going to be very conservative. They've all been given Stephanie's book to read, and we've had one or two of the shadow cabinet say oh, it was interesting. And we've met one or two of them. But the official ALP story is still the basic, Not, I'm not calling them neoliberals, but they're using the neoliberal language and way of talking about the government budget. And if you use the conservative framing, you'll lose more often than you, you win. So I am trying to help the Greens be a bit more successful, in part because the only way to force the Labour Party to do this is to attack them from the left, and there is only one vehicle for doing that, which is the Australian Greens. There are some excellent micro-parties out there, but in our system they're never going to get anywhere.
1: So that was uh, Stephen Hale talking about how both the major parties are reading from the same neoliberal hymn book, which is a hymn book which just supports the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, and widening that divide right at a time when we need something to distribute things more fairly uh, and bring us all together, we've got this same old rhetoric.
0: You know, when we talk about that division between the haves and the have-nots becoming more extreme, you know, one of the big parts of this budget was their tax cut package. (laughs) It was uh, $17 billion worth. It's really interesting to look at how they spread that out. So what they're offering is a permanent cut of $47 a week for high-income earners and then a one-off $21 cut for middle-income earners per week. (laughs) So people earning over $120,000 over a year, they'll get uh, nearly $2,500 off, and people earning between – around fifty to 90000 will get a one-off $1,000 a year.
1: When you say one-off, you mean it only goes yes, for one year yes. and then it reverts back? <laughs>
0: yes. So the way they've structured this, it's just insane. I don't
1: have too much of a problem with tax cuts per mm. se because one thing we learned through MMT is that taxes do not pay for government spending. Uh, taxes serve other purposes and they do serve some important purposes in Leveling out the uh, spending capability of the community, so that you don't end up with inflated sectors like like a housing market that becomes overinflated and people can't afford it anymore, which which is what's what's happened. But what does annoy me is they continue this this insane rhetoric about how we need to balance the budget at the same time as they give these massive tax cuts. Mm. So the wealthy, now I would have thought that if you're trying to balance the books, a good way to do that would be to collect more tax from the wealthy <laughs> rather than less, if, if you wanted to go down that orthodox line, which I don't think you, you need to. I, I, I can never understand how they aren't pulled up on the on these double standards. Like we need to balance the books, but we're going to give people tax, we're going to give the rich tax, tax mm. cuts and nobody pulls mm. them up. You okay, sort of but that doesn't make sense. It, like that just that mathematically doesn't make sense. If you want to have a balanced budget, <laughs> You need to either collect more tax or spend less. So even by your orthodox principles, which we mm. reject, it, it doesn't make sense.
0: <laughs> you just gut all the all the public uh, services. Yeah. So one of the, I guess, the overall things you could say about the budget is that, um, and this comes from an analysis done by Bill Mitchell, who's an MMT economist, despite the government doing all this spending, they are only spending about 11% of GDP. They probably should be spending double that. So not only are they not spending enough, but they're spending it in all the wrong places, like tax cuts to wealthy people who don't need the tax cuts.
1: <laughs> you know, they're giving tax cuts to the wealthy people at the same time as they're winding back a job seeker. And, and uh, it's just so blatantly geared towards making the rich richer and the, and punishing the poor. It's just more of the same. There's been no, no, no. radical reform whatsoever. They uh, They were driving us into recession before COVID started. They've been able to hide that by the actual uh, COVID pandemic and the and the, the economic uh, catastrophe that's occurred. They can say, oh, you know, it wasn't our, our economic management. Well, it was. You could tell the place was like a ghost town. You head down yeah. through St Kilda and everything's shut up. Yeah. That's where we're heading and their plan to get us out of this is to continue like they were before.
0: I'm really wondering what Berg Street Mall is going to look like after this. I think Myers is going to have to turn into an artist cooperative or something.
2: <laughs> I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3 CR. CR.
0: Listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au.
1: You're on Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev. That was Human Behaviour by Bjork. And speaking of human behaviour, Anne, something that is really up my Mm. nose at the moment is this whole Dan Andrews thing.
0: Ah, yes.
1: It's been driving me insane. Okay, so... I've been out doing some jobs and I'm not joking. I'd go in and I'd start this job and somebody would walk in the door and they'd go, hi, how are you? Bloody Dan Andrews. Like like every conversation I've had for the last couple of weeks has started with, well, oh, bloody Dan Andrews. These conversations started straight after an orchestrated media campaign headed by friggin' Rupert Murdoch and, mm-hmm. and this, this whole um, social media campaign. There was a really good thing on Media Watch about it, about all these uh, – Posts Spencer sent out, thousands of them from these dodgy, uh, dodgy social media accounts, just flooding uh, mm. media with how Dan Andrews is is such a terrible person. Okay, I get it. He made some mistakes with the initial quarantine. What's
0: their angle on him? What are they saying he's doing that's so terrible? Is it because he's put us into lockdown? Well,
1: yeah, it's because he's put us into lockdown. It's because he bungled the quarantine. It's, it doesn't matter what he does. He's done a terrible job and he needs mm. to be axed.
0: Oh, so- poor guy. I've never seen anyone work so hard. Do you imagine him Doing a media press gig oh. every day, every day. He's been there front and centre the whole time. And he answers
1: every question. So, so, so I get it. So they bungled the initial quarantine uh, and I get that. So the people that criticise him for that then criticise him about the fact that he's locked everything down. So what they're saying is that he should have been more stringent on the one hand, but he should be more relaxed on the other hand. So basically they're just going to attack him one way or the other.
0: <laughs> Coming and going.
1: And then they blame him for all of the deaths in aged care which is clearly a federal government responsibility. They knew from Newmarch House in New South Wales that aged care was particularly vulnerable. As was pointed out in the Royal Commission that came at, into aged care, the federal government had no plan for, for COVID. They, they were hopelessly uh, ill-prepared for, for the pandemic. And so when eventually over 700 people in Victoria die in aged care, who do they blame? Or Dan Andrews, you go. Okay, I get it. Mm. But they had a responsibility. So to that, I would say, if you're after a scalp for what it's worth, and it's not, it's it's hardly worth chasing scouts. But for some reason, people think it's really important to make them pay for their, for the terrible sins that they've made. This is a pandemic that people didn't mm. know uh, how infectious it was. They're learning on the hop the whole way through. We weren't wearing masks at the beginning, and now we all wear masks. Now we're finding out that it can live on your phone for a month. You know, We're finding out new things all the time. So mistakes were made. They were made by Dan Andrews. They were made by the federal government. They were made with the Ruby Princess. Mm-hmm. They were probably made by Peter Dutton. You never hear about that, though. I mean, there were mistakes made across the board, but apparently there's only one person to blame, and that's Dan Andrews. And you sort of go... If you can't see the political opportunism, mm-hmm. the political bias of this attack, then you have become a, a Murdoch puppet. You are mm. a brainless sheep that just regurgitates the propaganda that that mongrel spits out through his, his, his uh, media outlets the whole time, and it, it just it drives me it drives me insane.
0: People are only human; they'll make mistakes, and there are a lot of politicians in there that really are working yeah, hard. Yeah. It's really interesting, though, the whole thing about propaganda, because sometimes it seems really obvious and you wonder why people are buying into it. But at the same time, you know, you can understand when we're living with all these sort of big lies in this sort of neoliberal era of the government pretending, pretending to be there for the people when, in fact, there's this whole other agenda of destroying the public good. So that's the kind of political atmosphere that we're all living in.
1: Like you said, there are some politicians out there who are genuinely trying to do the right thing or start off in politics genuinely trying to do the right thing and then they either become uh, corrupted or or ambivalent or something along the way. But a lot of them do stay true the whole way through and you you have to deal with politics. So there's always going to be that aspect to it. But I I do have um, a degree of sympathy for the position mm-hmm. that Dan Andrews is in at the moment because it's literally the, the decisions he makes can determine life and death will possibly destroy somebody's livelihood or business and it's not like he's out there uh, like some evil uh, emperor how
0: many people can I destroy today <laughs> he's
1: got to try and weigh up the public good and, and the rest of it. it it'd have to be a really difficult position to be in what, what really pisses me off because I've got yeah. some friends and family who describe themselves as small L liberal, free enterprise moderates and I go, yeah, your radio. Right, you're right. But then they regurgitate Murdoch propaganda, and they don't raise an eyebrow when, when Turnbull gets replaced by Morrison, which is also that was orchestrated by Lachlan Murdoch. This Murdoch, if he is able to control the minds of so many people, so I don't know if if you're regurgitating hard right propaganda and you're voting for a, a neoliberal to be your prime minister. Well, you're not a small ear (laughs) liberal. You're a bloody right-wing fascist. And and stop pretending, you know. If you wanted to be a small ear liberal, you'd have to vote for the Labor Party at the moment because they fit the description much better.
0: Yeah, I heard uh, Bill Mitchell the other day say that uh, the Labor Party is actually to the right of Menzies at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know. So did you sign the petition, Kevin?
1: Yes, I absolutely did. I, I, I tried to get on, but, but the, uh, the site had crashed because so many people were trying to sign it. Oh,
0: wow. But, we better tell our listeners what that petition is. The
1: Kevin Rudd <laughs> petition to for the uh, Royal Commission into the Murdoch Press. What meeting. do you think
0: prompted him to do it now, like at this point? Well,
1: I don't know. Well, A, he's not the Prime Minister, therefore Murdoch can't get him booted out. That helps. <laughs> it's hard to underestimate just how interfering Murdoch is in not just Australian politics, but world politics. I mean, he goes back before Whitlam. I think he was responsible for getting rid of McMahon because he didn't like him. Then he put Whitlam in. Then he got Whitlam taken out. And then he's gone overseas. He's, he's the archetype megalomaniac neoliberal. He's, he's just out there on a mission to spread the extreme right neoliberal message as far and wide as he can. And some people say, say that he's not as powerful as what he is, and I think he plays into that. I think he likes to be perceived as not being as as interfering and and as much of a saboteur as what he is. But his fingerprints are on everything and he has way too much influence and people get sucked in by him. I I don't know how, but they just do. We're in 2020 and the mongrel is still active in... Just mm. spreading misinformation. It's funny yeah. how
0: those lies work, isn't it? Because it sounds like the more ridiculous and outlandish the lie is, the more people will believe it. Um, what was it? Hillary Clinton luring children with pizzas to sacrifice them?
1: It, it, it must be true because it, <laughs> nobody could make up something that outlandish, you know. Yeah, but you know who should jump on the bandwagon is uh, is Malcolm Turnbull should join forces with Kevin Rudd.
0: Oh, that would because, be an idea.
1: Mm. Because. It, Turnbull lost his, the leadership and, and the prime ministership through Lachlan Murdoch, who apparently is mm. worse than his dad. Uh, so Turnbull should be joining Kevin Rudd. you then have bipartisan support for a mm. you know, very good cause. Then it
0: wouldn't seem like just... Um, sour
1: grapes from, sour, from yeah. one side of politics. It'd be sour grapes from both sides of politics. So, uh, yeah, this is the divide. This is the battle. It's, it's no longer a battle between Liberal and Labor, which is kind of like, you know, workers versus... Uh, the owners of business it's now a battle between the extreme right-wing fascists and the moderate right but progressives we're we're not even considered like we're, we're kind of refuse at this battle. We're,
0: <laughs> 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 well yeah. um it was actually somewhat inspiring to hear dr stephen hale say he knows that now that pretty much all of the ALP and all of the Greens have at least encountered MMT and a lot of them have read Stephanie Kelton's book and she's the American MMT economist who's written the book called The Deficit Myth which does apply to the Australian situation as much as the American situation so a lot of our current pollies do know about how the monetary system works
1: yes and might have some progressive economic thoughts uh, to consider Let's hope things turn around. It's, imagine, imagine if a Royal Commission against the Murdoch Press got up. His empire was reduced and all the polis started reading progressive economic books and, and had new ideas and started building public housing and <laughs> and... Uh, No, I better not think about it. That's too depressing. (laughs) (laughs) It's so far Well,
0: imagine they could introduce a state owned bank and we could have universal free childcare and we could have free public transport and we could. And a um, a
1: renewable energy grid. We could
0: could fund the CSIRO and the ABC and the SBS properly.
1: Our citizens could be sitting in really nice facilities and, and, uh, yeah, uh, it'd be lovely. There's so much that could be done. Anyway, Anne, you know, despite uh, d- despite the somewhat ramshackle review we've had this this week, we've actually run out of time. Here we go, because we've got Mafelda coming up next, and uh, uh, we need to make space.
0: We're pretty good at raving ourselves, aren't we?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Might have to give Jacob a run for his money. No, no, we won't be doing that. He does. He does he's far more organised in his thoughts than we are. <laughs> anyway, it's been it's been a, a nice, casual, and interesting show, Anne's, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.
0: See you then, Kevin you've been listening to unemployed workers fight back
1: join us the second and fourth friday of each and every month as part of the sewer show on 3cr
0: listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au
1: we thank all our guests and i thank you Anne.
0: and i thank you kevin oh no
1: the pleasure was all mine
0: oh no kevin the pleasure was all mine
1: you mean all the pleasure was yours
0: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs>
1: well, if you took all the pleasure, that means there's no pleasure for me at all, and I oh. quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure?
0: I think we should share the pleasure. Well,
1: we're going to have to share the pleasure, because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure as great you have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure.
0: Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you, and it was pleasurable for me. I think
1: we've got a multiplier to play that here. That means <laughs> doubly pleasurable. So if the pleasurable view is <laughs> a fresh animal, please, if you twice as pleasurable.